This show was first broadcast on the 19th of April, 2021. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we infect your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Dr. John Froud delivers the second part of his discussion about how plagues have shaped humanity. First up, his NASA news of ingenuity taking off. Up and away! NASA's Ingenuity helicopter has successfully flown on Mars. The solar-powered helicopter first went up at 12.33 Mars time on Monday the 19th of April 2021, a time the Ingenuity team determined would have optimal energy and flight conditions. Ingenuity climbed to its maximum altitude of 3 metres and maintained a stable hover for 30 seconds. It then descended, touching back down on the surface of Mars after logging 39.1 seconds of flight. It's a long way to Mars from Earth, too long for remote pilots to watch a video feed and use joysticks to control the helicopter. Instead, the Ingenuity helicopter is autonomous. It flies itself by algorithm and sensors. The helicopter is 49 centimetres tall and has a mass of 1.8 kilograms. Martian air pressure is less than a hundredth of the air pressure on Earth. So there's less air for the helicopter to push against. Ingenuity makes up for this by having larger rotor blades that spin faster than an equal-sized helicopter would need on Earth. The rotor blade tips will be moving at around 70% of the speed of sound in the Martian atmosphere, about 240 meters per second. Ingenuity carries two cameras and a laser altimeter. Ingenuity runs a flight-focused version of Linux on a 2.26 GHz quad-core Snapdragon 801 processor, the same kind of CPU that's used in phones. Radiation-hardened processors aren't fast enough for the real-time vision of the helicopter, so the CPU will fail every few minutes due to radiation-induced bit flips. NASA has a radiation-resistant programmable chip reboot the CPU when it fails. Ingenuity will start to fall out of the sky, but it can go through a full reboot and come back online in a few hundred milliseconds to continue flying. The first flight was delayed by a week due to a software glitch, but the wait was worth it, as the flight went exactly as planned. The next flight of Ingenuity is scheduled for around April 22nd, The next two flights will take the helicopter up to 5 metres above the surface and moving up to 15 metres forward and back to the landing area. The paths for flight 4 and 5 will depend upon these earlier flights as they take the helicopter to its limits 
and perhaps beyond. It might break, but that's planned for too. Ingenuity's mission is scheduled to finish at the end of April. Fortunately, just 65 metres away, the Perseverance rover was able to take a video of the historic first flight on another planet and beam the video back to NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where they made the stream available on YouTube. NASA Associate Administrator for Science, Thomas Zaberkin, announced their Martian helicopter site is now called the Wright Brothers Field, in honour of the two pioneering brothers' first powered flight 117 years ago. The helicopter flights on Mars won't just tell us how to build better drones for other planets, but will inform us how to make tougher and more autonomous aircraft on Earth. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. John Froud is an infectious disease practicing clinician. He currently works in both the US and the UK, but has worked around the world in his career. He spoke with me by Zoom from England. I continued our conversation by asking him, how have plagues affected human evolution? That in 2003, when the human genome was sequenced for the first time, it took four years and cost $3 billion. And now you can get your genome for $99.99 in three days, which is an example of how the technology has progressed. It is just amazing how it's actually from the graphs I saw, DNA sequencing technology is getting faster and cheaper more quickly than computers are getting faster and cheaper. It's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. But when they looked at the human genome, they found that 8% of it was retroviral nucleic acid because the retrovirus is RNA, it turns itself into DNA, and it sets itself into the chromosomes of the host cell. Now, if that cell should happen to be a germ cell, a sperm or an ovum, then it is inherited. And so it is passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation. It's likely that a lot of the time when these retroviral genomes got into the human genome, it led to deaths of the cell, but some survived. How many retroviral genomes are there in the human genome, do you think, roughly? I mean, one or two? It's something like 100,000 viruses have made their way. 8% is made up of these endogenous retroviruses, which is, you know, for your protein, it's about 3% of the genome. So twice as much. And that's even more than that, because transposons and jumping genes are also from retroviral DNA. So it comes out about 40% of the human genome is viral in origin. So this is a second way in which our lives and our entities are interwoven with microbes. It's like a, a super mutation. A whole range of DNA is thrown into a chromosome. It's usually bad, but occasionally it might be good. For instance, the placenta could not have evolved 
without a gene product from a retrovirus. So it has accelerated evolution. Were it not for that particular retrovirus, we would probably be marsupials, you know, or <laughs> of which... So we've been acquiring genes from viruses that could have been acquiring the genes from all over the place. Indeed, absolutely so. So that that's the second way in which our, our interaction is much more intimate than just something coming out of the blue and causing a fever. Then it shapes our genome. You have the autosomal recessive disorders, the classic example of which would be sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease is a mutation, but mutations, according to Darwin, most of them are useless and they disappear. But sickle cell disease is the most prominent hemoglobin disease on the planet, and the number of people with it are increasing, not decreasing. So there must be a benefit, and it is. If you're a carrier or if you're a heterozygote and you have one gene, then you are protected against malaria. So where malaria is prevalent, so let's say West Africa, sickle cell disease is a survival advantage. It's huge. Yes, you know, here's your choice. What would you like? You can have four kids and two of them will be resistant to malaria. You like that idea? Yeah, it's a great idea, Mother Nature. That's a great idea. But Here's the price. One has to have this horrible disease and die prematurely from sickle cell disease. And if there's a lot of malaria around, that's a really good deal. Now we move to America, where there are a number of people of West African origin living. And so sickle cell disease is found in America. But there's no malaria in America. So what's the benefit of it? There is no benefit, none whatsoever. Shouldn't it disappear? Well, it will, but very, very slowly, very slowly, many, many generations. It's, it's going to take before this bad mutation disappears. So this makes you look, doesn't it, at other autosomal recessive diseases. If you just look at sickle cell disease in America, and you'd never heard of the slave trade, and you'd never heard of malaria, you'd say, this is just a, a, a genetic abnormality, you know, it arose for no reason, and, uh, you know. It's pure happenstance. But we know better than that. We know that it's protective against malaria. So what about other autosomal recessive diseases, of which there are uh, three or 400 known and probably five times that number unknown? Did they give us a benefit to some infection that has now disappeared? And there is evidence for this. For instance, cystic fibrosis which is the commonest gene in Eastern Europe to cause disease. One in 18 Irish people carry the gene for cystic fibrosis. Ashkenazi Jews, one in 25. People in Europe, generally one in 30, carry the gene for cystic fibrosis. Did that protect us? And the epidemiological answer is yes. This was selected for by tuberculosis that tuberculosis and cystic fibrosis is the same as sickle cell disease and malaria. So infectious diseases have structured our genome and are responsible for genetic disorders and genetic benefit. 
And I mention these things as an example of how intricately interwoven our lives are, not just our history, but our present biological lives are with microbes. You know, we have the colon, which is packed with bacteria. There are many more bacteria in your colon than there are cells in your body. So it must have some purpose, and it does, it does. But I'm not going to get into that because here's the biggie. This is the last one and the biggie. Sex. (laughs) Sex. Why do we replicate by sexual reproduction? So there are so many things that are difficult about sexual reproduction. This is the teaching of Professor John Maynard Smith, who was an eminent zoologist at Sussex University, and he said this was the, the greatest puzzle that biologists faced. What is the use of sexual reproduction? Half of the people can't even have babies. You know, that's very inefficient. If you multiplied by binary fission, it would be much more efficient. You'd have one, two, four, eight, 16, 32. But with sexual reproduction, it's one, 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 with the exception of twins and triplets. But it's inefficient in that respect. And with it, there are a lot of other problems associated with sexual reproduction. How on earth did we evolve this? How did we evolve meiosis or or the reduction of number of chromosomes in a cell, in a somatic cell as opposed to a germ cell? That that must have cost a lot of energy and still does. It's inefficient in, in a lot of different ways, including sexually transmitted diseases, for example. And some have suggested that the predominant cancers in women, breast, ovary, and uterus, these are all, perhaps it's uh, related to their recent evolution. So there must be some extraordinary force selecting for sexual reproduction. Because at first glance, it's hopeless. First glance, it's grossly inefficient. What's the difference between you and me and your kids, my kids, and binary fission. What's the difference is that by binary fission, the two offspring have identical genes. That's the problem. We have separate genes. We have tremendous polymorphism in our gene at a fantastic rate. Our genes are different one from another more than our fingerprints are different. So, So it leads to this extreme variation. And it's the benefit to the human race is this mixing this mixing process of the genes. So why is that beneficial? Well, if everybody's genes are the same, along comes a plague and it kills all of them. They're gone. But with sexual reproduction, no plague will kill everybody. Some will survive because of their genetic variation. This little handful over here will resist cholera. A little handful over here will resist smallpox. Consider HIV. AIDS has a mortality, you might think, of 100%, but it isn't 100%. It's something like 96%, which would be cold comfort, I think, if, if, you, know, if you were HIV positive. But so it means that 4% of people have a natural immunity that stems from this mixing of the genes. So sexual reproduction is a response to our interaction with microbes. If it were not for plagues, we wouldn't have sexual reproduction. 
If it were not for plagues, we probably wouldn't be here. There are only very primitive life forms can get by by binary fish or other types of reproduction, parthenogenesis, for instance, other types of reproduction that leave the offspring with identical genes. This is disaster. There are some smaller animals that do survive that way. But if you want to evolve, you've got to have sexual reproduction. So, so all of this that is so important to us is there for a very good reason. It's to be sure that when the next plague comes along, we don't all die. So that's all this, you know, love, madness, uh, uh, Dr. Zhivago, songs, everything is all because of plagues. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and yet we should be prepared for the next ones while we're still dealing with this one. It's interesting to observe that this plague was predicted in general terms by practically everybody who was a scientist or working in the field. And in particular terms, by some Chinese scientists who work with bats in the caves, not too far from Wuhan. And they wrote a paper a year before predicting a coronavirus pandemic. They said, there's one coming. We don't know when, but it could come at any time. And this was absolutely perfectly argued with meticulous scientific appreciation of the situation a year before. And I believe that Bill Gates had been talking to some of these epidemiologists that were predicting this, and he went off and did his own TED Talks. Yeah. And, of course, now his name is associated with coronavirus. Yes. Yes. Well, he, he was a non-scientist who was preaching the truth. There will be more plagues. It is still true. As time goes by and as social standards are better understood and so on, it's more and more likely that these are going to be viral in the future. And, and the great plagues of the 20th century, there's about three per hundred years, but that might accelerate now for various reasons. The three of the 20th century were Spanish flu, AIDS, and you may be surprised by the third that actually killed more people than AIDS and Spanish flu put together. It's a bit counterintuitive. Can you guess it? Smallpox. Smallpox, Smallpox caused, killed more people than AIDS and Spanish flu put together in the 20th century. It is counterintuitive because the vaccine, because it was eradicated from the, the planet in 1975. But smallpox was, has a 30% mortality. You know, when we look at the coronavirus, it's half a percent mortality. And that is still a huge number of people. So imagine what 30% mortality would have been like to live with. Horrific. And then we had all the other illnesses before yeah. we had general antibiotics and other treatments. Yes, absolutely. So the next pandemic is likely to be viral. It's likely to come from the rainforest. Mm. Uh, and yes, uh, because where there's life, there's viruses. And where there's more life, there's more viruses. Uh, and there's more life from the rainforest than anywhere else. And we have uh, a number of examples already. It's not something that's going to happen. It's something that has happened already. Yellow fever epidemics of the 18th and 19th century, devastating throughout the world were a consequence of the slave trade when uh, the virus was taken to the new world, uh, so-called new world. 
uh, out of the rainforest, transmitted by, uh, by mosquito. HIV came out of the rainforest. Uh, that's, a, that's a remarkable sequence of events, which I talk about in the book because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very fascinating. But here's an interesting one, West Nile virus. West Nile virus was identified by uh, a group of brilliant virologists ahead of their time because it was ahead of DNA technology. But they still managed to uh, experiment in the field by using experimental animals and antibodies. And they found a woman with a fever and they thought what it might be. And this woman came from Uganda. She, they, they were situated in Uganda. And she came from the West Nile province. So it was called West Nile virus. And there were little outbreaks of West Nile virus over the next uh, 50 years. Let's see, so that brings us... And then in 1999, in New York City, crows started falling out of the sky, dead crows, <laughs> thudding onto people's windscreen as they were driving to work. You would think uh, that would kind of be alarming to people. They would get somebody interested. And then some birds in the Bronx Zoo started dying off. And then there was a little outbreak of encephalitis amongst elderly retirees, also in Brooklyn. To cut a long story short, this was identified as the West Nile virus, which in 1999 had never been seen in the Western Hemisphere at all. But now in 2020, it spread to every single country in the world. It can be lethal to humans. Uh, we occasionally see patients who have neurological disease, consequences of their infection. So it's not merely dying, as we've seen with COVID, by the way, you have the long COVID, you have all these other horrible features of the disease, which are not insignificant. So West Nile virus is passively, is a global pandemic, has infected uh, the, the whole world without anybody noticing. Hendra virus, is that an Australian? Yes, that's a little... yes, yes, the horses, yes. Horses. Which brings us to another point our relationship with animals. Most, most infections, most pandemics involve other animals. And that's true of the coronavirus. Bats are very uh, interesting in this respect. They harbor viruses, but don't suffer from disease. They have a sort of metabolism that enables these viruses to dwell in them without killing off the bats. Bats are very, uh, many populace in the world, everywhere. And so there are reservoirs of viruses hanging around all over the place, in caves in China, in the rainforest, in Africa, and, and many other places besides. Now, if you uh, went into a cave and you reached up and accidentally grabbed a bat, you could catch a viral infection from that bat. But that's not usually the way it goes. It's usually via an intermediate host. It's an intermediate host that, that gets it. With previous coronaviruses, we had the camel was the intermediate host uh, and the goat. And then it was thought for this one that it was the pangolin. Do you remember? Yes. That it was due to the pangolin. And I, I had no idea what a pangolin was. But, but I, so, so I looked it up. But it's actually nothing to do with the pangolin. The pangolin is innocent and the intermediate host the intermediate host for this virus is not known, has not, has not been identified. 
But so bats uh, in caves and then man's practice of eating bush meat, uh, a huge problem from uh, the African rainforest, where they eat, you know, lizards, rats, anything, monkeys, eat everything that moves. Uh, and so it was in the Wuhan market. It was the wet meat market it was filled with all kinds of exotic creatures, which people ate. So they were the intermediate host. Somewhere in there is an intermediate host. It's the origins of plagues is stranger than anyone could ever have thought, that we have not emphasized them sufficiently in history. And our intimate relationship with microbes is it A, extraordinary, and, and B, needs to be better understood. Well, John, thank you very much. Not at all. It's a pleasure talking to you. That was the second and final part of my discussion with Dr. John Froud, infectious disease practicing clinician, about the diseases that have plagued humanity. His book Plagued will be released in June 2021 by Ben Biller Books. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including... Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, ACCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MBR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for photos, links and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. 
Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.